Prepare to be captivated by the business story of the week, hosted by me, Shaheen Shan. Join us on a journey through the twists and turns of entrepreneurial triumphs and setbacks. Immerse yourself in the narrative and witness the magic that turns dreams into reality. This is Business Story of the Week. And welcome back. Here we are again to Business Story of the Week. I am your co-host, Josh. And today, like we always do, we will adventure into the lives and journey of those who dare to dream and do. And we will navigate the world of entrepreneurship, business, and innovation, uncovering stories of perseverance, struggle, and success. And today, ladies and gentlemen, we have quite the innovation at our hands and a titan of the industry. Doug Howarth has revolutionized the field of economics. He is the inventor of hypernomics. We're going to get into that today. His discovery alters economics akin to how relativity changed physics, all right? Utilizing multiple dimensions, including time, to understand the economy. At 14, Doug sensed limitations in existing plotting systems, which led him to identify economies self-organizing patterns and multiple dimensions, culminating in his founding of Hypernomics Incorporated, his company serving clients like NASA, Lockheed Martin, leverages this novel economic perspective. Doug, a prolific author with 13 peer-reviewed publications, is also a renowned speaker, having presented his groundbreaking ideas internationally. This is very, very deep of a kind of a topic we have here in our hands today. Doug, thank you for gracing us with your presence. How are you doing? Josh, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, as you know, and uh, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks. Doug, I, I, I love this. We need to get into this because I feel like we need a lot of time to kind of dig through this. And I want to I want to pick your brain, want to pick your wisdom, Doug. Um, sure. First of all, I, I do like to start where it all started, you know, the journey that mm-hmm. led you to hypernomics. Um, my, in, my, my introduction there said, like, you started at 14. You were like sensing these limitations in the economies. And how did that happen? What were the key moments? What were the insights that you took on very early on that sparked this revolutionary approach to economics? What was the story, Doug? Well, uh, when I was 14, I was exposed, as a lot of kids are, to what's known as the Cartesian coordinate systems. Those are the 2D and 3D coordinate systems that were taught uh-huh. in junior high or high school, depending where you are. That explains uh-huh. where dots are in space. And it's kind of akin to latitude, longitude, and elevation. Mm-hmm. But the thing about the 3D perspective that we saw in Cartesian coordinate systems is that unlike being latitude, longitude, and altitude, there is no negative latitude, there's no negative longitude, there's no negative mm-hmm. altitude unless you're below the ocean. Right, right. And so <clears throat> the ability of the Cartesian systems to... to accommodate negative numbers seemed like a great thing. But when I went out, so this, this problem had been kind of floating in my brain for decades. Mm-hmm. I, I went to school, got a degree in economics, mm-hmm. never quite believed it. And so I uh, had this kind of floating in my head that the law of supply and demand was hard to prove. And that shouldn't have been my goal, but I was trying to prove that. 
I kept playing with it, couldn't play when it didn't work. And then finally one day I went out with my wife and we were buying a washing machine of all things. And she says, as we strode up this washing machine in a big box store, she says, I like this washing machine. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. She says, you know, it's got more capacity than we have at home. And I thought capacity versus price. Right. That's what we like to call a two dimensional problem. Right. Okay. And she said, we only got one delicate cycle at home. I'd like to have more delicate mm -hmm. cycles. Oh, I said, okay. well, cycles versus price. Now she's up to a 3D problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then uh, I saw the next model up the line, which had more cycles, more capacity. It's more expensive. And I said, what about this one? She says, it costs too much. We can't afford it. And I realized that our little purchase was going to put the, uh, the one that we were getting was going to put the total quantity for that model for that year out one. And that everybody else that was buying that model was going to push it out. And the ones up above us were going to go not move as far. The ones that were cheaper were going further. Mm -hmm. So we were part of the quantity, quantity mix. So we were solving for capacity, uh -huh. cycles, price, and quantity. So I realized that she was working in a four-dimensional system in her head. Right. And then I looked around the store and I said, everybody's doing that in their head. Exactly. And so I raced home and uh, figured out a way to plot four dimensions. I bought myself a plotting system, an engineering uh -huh. design package, but it wasn't designed. Nobody had a 4D system, so I built one for myself. And then eventually we formed a company around it. We actually patented the world's first 4D software. And I started okay. to make some findings in the field that are pretty important. So the, the field mm -hmm. hypernomics, hyper means existing in more than three dimensions. Right. Mm -hmm. Anonymy, N-O-M-Y, means a field of study. So hypernomics is a field of study that studies more, four or more dimensions. And so that's what hypernomics means and what it does. It studies things in four or more dimensions. And what's interesting is that it takes stuff that you already know yes. and reassembles it to something you probably haven't seen before, but you probably need if you're going to do business analysis. So, for example, when I was talking to you about that washing machine, you're thinking to yourself, yep, well, I've yep. seen small little washers mm -hmm. and I've seen big washers. The, the big ones mm -hmm. cost more, right? And then you say to yourself, I've seen simple washing machines with just a couple of cycles mm -hmm. and they cost less than the ones that have lots of cycles. And mm -hmm. so <clears throat> you already know intuitively that if you get more of what you want, it, it costs more. Exactly. And then you also know that if you see the top of the line machine, it might cost two or three thousand dollars in one of these stores that it, it's not going to sell as many units as the machine that cost six hundred dollars. And uh -huh. so it takes all those things that you already know and just reassembles them so that you can see it in a way you hadn't seen it before. But you need to see it to, if you're going to try to either buy something in the market, right. sell something in the market or try to enter the market. What an interesting perspective, like an insight. It's, it's mind blowing because, like you said, it is. It's like subconsciously, like you unconsciously know these things already, right? And mm -hmm. you're you're talking about like I'm imagining this quadrant now, and the way you explained it, it's like wow, we do it in our everyday lives, and we we value things that way. And now you're saying that you figured out a way to lay it all out for everyone so they could easily understand and apply this into business and economics, which is like a bigger kind of like a broader coverage of it. Um, how do you see it changing now the way the, the way we see business and 
entrepreneurship or especially not just business, but because we mentioned that sectors like aerospace use this, right? And technology. Mm -hmm. Now they're approaching um, what market analysis and decision making based on these quadrants that you created. What were the biggest change that you saw and the significance of um, the influence of what you came up with when it comes to these industries? Well, Josh, as I got deeper and deeper into it, what I discovered was mm -hmm. that as markets mature, they start to do this self-aggregating feature, which is to say collectively everybody behaves roughly, and that's the operative word there, roughly the same way. And so if you were to look at the, the quantity versus the price, if it, for example, the stock market, right. If you plotted it in what they call log log space, so you basically did every time you went one, you every tenth you took down to one, every ten units you took down to one, you made it log scale. Mm -hmm. If you plotted it that way, you'd find that all the stocks kind of form this ellipse, and we had this ellipse has terms to it. So the the upper side of this this the, these stock points, and so all the stocks, every stock that's for sale, the quantity on this axis and the price on this axis. The upper boundary of this, we call the demand frontier, the upper demand frontier. Right. And then markets like the stock market often have an outer demand frontier. Right. Sometimes they have a lower demand frontier and very often they have an inner demand frontier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you can find out what those limits are, then you can figure out if somebody can exceed it or not, or what, what you have to do to try to go into that market. So. Most importantly, in aerospace, I found that right. the there are real hard limits in aerospace that form, and that uh, I called out this one company who was making a supersonic business jet, and it was wow. going to try to exceed the boundary of this this okay. demand frontier. Mm -hmm. And so when they when they started, they wanted to exceed the demand frontier. They wanted to sell three hundred units of this twenty hundred twenty million dollar business jet. Right. They want to sell 300 of them in, in 10 years. And it turned out, if you, if you studied the line, that they might have sold 47. Well, they launched oh. with 20 orders, which is consistent with that limit. And uh -huh. then five years later, they still had the same 20 orders. So I wrote this piece on LinkedIn that says, worth every penny, not enough pennies. Very and what I was well. basically telling them was that, yeah, you got the price right, you got your cost right, right. but you didn't bother to figure out the demand for this. Exactly. And there's no chance you're going to make your demand figure. So I got this angry note from these people. Guy mm -hmm. actually knew from another work incident, uh, work okay. project that I was on. He mm -hmm. said, oh, you got this big order. And he didn't tell me that they're all for options, which means in aerospace, right. if you build it mm -hmm. and it works, then we'll buy it. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And uh, I said, well, it's great that you got those that the, that order in, but you're still going to fail. And uh, six months later, they went bankrupt and they stopped writing me. Oh my goodness! Wow! Like, well, yeah. it sounds like it sounds like what did he call this? Like a the a, a devil's advocate, so to speak, but more like a warning. Like I was telling you guys that this isn't gonna work. You showed a kind of like, and it's not even like uh, out of the blue, right? You actually had reasons. You had the numbers. You had the quadrants to tell them that it doesn't work. Right? Why do people don't? Why don't do you think they listen to that? Why aren't they quite receptive? Well, this particular company didn't know about hypernomics as they launched. And so, oh, um, okay. I mean, it, it, because it's new, I mean, basically we were kind of under the radar for 
over a decade, we didn't want a whole bunch of people knowing what we were doing. So we just worked with a few big outfits, just enough to keep us going. And a lot of people didn't know that there were these phenomena that are out there. So another phenomenon that I just called out or oh, just a month or two ago, maybe a lot of you have heard about the hypersonic missiles, missiles that go yeah. seven or eight times the speed of sound. Yeah. Well, they're, they're flying. The, the Russians have them. The Chinese have them. So we want them. And so we went out and bought one. You know, we bought one from Lockheed Martin. And it was going to go seven times the speed of sound. It was going to go a thousand miles. And it cost $42 million for the first one. And the Congressional Budget Office says, well, after you buy this first one, we can go out and buy a hundred of them at $14 million. And, and what I did was I, I went out and figured out what they had purchased for the previous 20 years. And it turns out that there's a real hard demand frontier there. And it turned out that the chances of them doing that, I mean, the price for a hundred, instead of being 14 million, uh -huh. should have been about three and a half. They were four times too expensive. And because this data was pretty well correlated, it worked out that they had less than one chance in a trillion oh for this to happen. What? And so I'm, I'm calling them out right now. So that's not gonna happen. If you wanna have a hypersonic weapon, you have to make it smaller so it costs less and right. you can fly it right. and you can fly it. But you can't you can't have a fly a thousand miles at this beginning price and then expect it to mm -hmm. be accepted by the market. The market simply doesn't have enough exactly. money in it. Precisely. And so this this like... works for governments too. This this whole uh -huh. thing is uh -huh. just not for entrepreneurs, it works for governments. So how here in California, United States, we're having a lot of people fleeing the, the state because the taxes are too high. Right. Right, right. Well, the state wants tax revenue. That's not natural enough. Well, so what do you do to raise tax revenue? Well, the, the, the idea is here that we'll just raise the rates, especially on the people who got a lot of money. But what they haven't bothered to figure out is, is that the slope of this taxpayer demand curve, if you want to call it that, is pretty flat. When you raise it a little bit, you lose a lot of people. What they should be doing instead, if they want to raise the taxes, drop the tax rate. Then people will flood the state coming in here to, to have a better tax break. And they'll bolster, they'll bolster the economy because the rich people come in instead of paying 25 or 30 percent or whatever the state wants to get out of them. They might pay, you know, two thirds of that and they'll just push a whole bunch of money into the state. So it works for everything that we've looked at. It works for everything from ground beef to train travel to spaceships. And we apply it to Did all those markets. Did they listen no, to the state doesn't to me either. No, no, state doesn't listen to me. They're still taxing the heck out of everybody and everybody's fleeing. So, uh, but they need to, they want to get, if they want to have the state be viable, that's what they need to do. They need to drop okay. the tax rate. Yeah. Precisely. And yeah. It, get, forgive me if like, I'm, I'm go, I'm seeing this from an outsider perspective, right? It's like from a layman's term, a regular Joe, um, mm -hmm. And I'm also seeing it, trying to see it from their perspective, the governments and the economies and the military comp, uh, industrial complex. Um, right. Why do you think it's such a new concept, right? And now you're trying to put yeah. it out there. It sounds like to them, it must sound like woo woo, you know, like it must sound like, what is this? This is like, all, <laughs> this is all, this is all from, from some guy, some science guys trying to claim all these numbers, but how do we make it more? How do we make it more accessible now, this kind of information? How do we say and be, let it be more acceptable to, you know, not just the industries, but 
to regular Joes like myself? Well, the, the interesting thing is that it, the, the whole thing starts with what we call dot plots. Basically, a dot plot is nothing more than showing where something happened at a point in time. The most elemental dot plot that you may have heard of, did anybody in your audience or perhaps you'd heard of the story of Hansel and Gretel? Mm -hmm. the Hansel and Gretel gets led out to the woods and they find their yep. way home by laying pebbles on the way, on the way yep. out. Well, those pebbles amount to dot plots, and that dot plot okay. amount, those dot plots amount to a map. And it yeah. turns out that when you start applying dot plots to real life, you can get some real life answers. So, for example, Dr. John Snow, a doctor in 18th century England, was trying to figure out why cholera had broken out in Soho, London, UK in the 1800s. And he, what he did was he started making dot plots where people were dying. And he, tra he traced the locus of all those dots to something called the Broad Street Pump. And it yeah. turned out that below that pump, above that pump, before they put the well in there, there had been a, a cesspool. And, and the, the cesspool contents had leaked into the pump. He asked okay. them to turn the pump off and the, the epidemic subsided. So this, the dot plots in epidemiology are massive, and it turns out that they're also massive in plotting where you are economically. So it's nothing more than figuring out where you are, and then when you see these points, they, they start to aggregate, and you, you can use this aggregation then to figure out what's going on. And that's, the, uh, that's where the utility comes out of this thing, is the, being able to figure out where, to, where the dots aggregate. It's really like a kind of like starting with the starting with the simplest forms, like find your find your numbers, find the patterns, dot them, dot mm -hmm. your eyes and look for whatever repeats and kind of just like quantify that. I, I believe based on your theories and your uh, systems that you've created, it does sound like the future of economics, Doug. Um, yeah, actually, I, I would claim. Yeah. I'm claiming that it's the past and the future. I'll, I'll tell you why. Oh, wow. um, please, please. Now, I, I have another little story that kind of relates to this. So uh, mm -hmm. this uh, famous physicist, Richard Feynman, who won the uh, Nobel Prize for Physics about mm -hmm. you know, doing quantum computing, quantum physics, um, quantum mechanics, excuse me, yes. he used to famously study ants in his spare time just for fun. And so one, t one day about three months ago, I got done you know, running a trail and I got back to the end of the trail and it was kind of tired and I was bent over and I saw this little ant mm -hmm. and I decided to study this ant. It's a little reddish black ant. He started going clockwise and he started tracing out something that looked like a circle, except when he was done making 360 degrees, he was out a little bit further than where he started. And then he okay. traced another circle, little jiggles, comes around again. Oh, what? Does another 360 degrees and he's out further still. Uh -huh. And he does it again. And then I, I it, then all of a sudden it hit me. I go, that guy, that guy's doing <laughs> reconnaissance. Oh. So I race home, type in ant reconnaissance into the into my search bar, and sure enough, this little species of ants that goes in a counterclockwise thing, mm -hmm. uh, fashion, they do surveillance to figure out where they want to put their new nests. Wow. Much like a, a, a company might figure out where to place their new products. Wow. 
And when they build the new nest, when they pick the sites, they pick the sites in kind of the same way that we do. Well, you know, is there less competition? Am I going to have access to water, but I'm not going to get flooded? Is it going to be dry when I want to? Is it too open, too tight? So the ants weigh out all these things. And this species of ant has been around for 40 million years. And I maintain we're smarter than ants. So I maintain we've been doing this since mankind has been around. We do the same thing. And so it, it turns out that this actually reveals what people have been doing the whole time. And it puts it in a context that you can actually make some sense out of it. And then you can act on it so that you don't make mistakes. Now, some people, Elon Musk most notably, kind of do this intuitively. It, what, when I say like the, these ants were looking for open areas, I mean, there were basically this, this little guy because he goes in circles and he's, he's trying to get on the right. high, high pebbles to look down. He's trying to find a place that doesn't have any competition. And it turns out that when Elon Musk went from his first car, the Roadster, to his S, right. and then he went to the Y, and then he went to the Model 3, he kept finding open spaces in the market. He kind of did this intuitively. Now, other people like you and me, we might need to have a little bit more, more of a map in front of us. And so this creates a map exactly. to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. Wow. So a it's map like with a series of instructions. Past and the future. It's a map to the past and the future. Yes. In and fact, that's another thing we like to talk about too, Josh, is we take the, the, the uh -huh. distant past, the uh -huh. near past, and the present. We try to take the distant past, near past, and the present to predict the near future. So uh -huh. well, much like if you watch a soccer ball being kicked, if you saw it two seconds ago, call it the distance past, you know where it was. You saw uh -huh. it a second ago, and you see it now, the present. You, you probably have a pretty good idea that where it'll be a second from now. And it's the same kind of thing. The markets right. have the same kind of momentum. Uh, we call that momentum economic trajectory analysis or ETA. Markets move kind of like a ball moves in space over time and in ways in which you can track it. And so we do that too. Wow. Doug, yeah. I need you to give us the, the download of what is it that you see now that you, uh, we know that your hypernomics just went out. The book is out today. Um, we're going to mm -hmm. give our audiences a chance to uh, get to know a bit more about that. But I want to know what your future aspirations are, or what you are seeing the future of of all this when we put this theory and the theory in practice. What do you think will be the future implications on what on academics or on practical business strategy? Uh, how do you think this is going to change things going forward? Well, there's a, a competitive a competing book to mine by a Dr. Clayton Christensen, in which he points out not this, this is a great thing. He says 95% of all new product ideas fail. So that means 5% succeed. So what would happen now if people start to read the book or yeah, there'll be other people who knock this book off and there'll be other papers and all kinds of stuff about this. But what if people start to become interested enough in hypernomics to actually decide not to fail by doing their analytics in advance? And so instead of 5% of these products succeeding, what happens if, it's, what happens if it moves to 6%? Wow. Well, 5% to 6%, that's a 20% improvement. Yeah. And so what if it goes from 5% to 6% to 7%? Well, I predict that it's going to go from about 5% to 6% to 7% to maybe all the way up to 10% in the course of a decade. And what that's going to do is it's going to make the economy much more lucrative. 
The other thing that happens, we, we've, we use this technique in the stock market. We've been doing this for nearly four years. We're beating the S&P 500 and we're beating um, Berkshire Hathaway and the chances of that coming about, likelihood of that coming about due to chance is less than one in a trillion. Wow. We're using the same techniques there. And, and what's going to happen is in the greater stock market, the, the variability of these rises and falls that we see, especially if the Fed listens and doesn't decide to crank up the money supply by 4x like they did in two quarters in 2000, the, the amplitude of the, the rises and the crashes in the market will start to dampen over time. Okay, yeah. And then the frequency of the, these crashes will happen. So like something like the 2000, the 9-11 event will always be yes. set off a market crash and so will the, mm -hmm. the Gulf War. But the 2007 eight real estate crash, that was all because people didn't have the right information. And I maintain what happened out of COVID was largely due to the same thing. So we could have avoided two crashes in the last 20 years or dampened them significantly had these techniques been widely understood and in place. So I see this transforming academia. I see it transforming government and business very deeply. I mean, I it, sure it's a little bit self-serving on our part, but it's also helping out the world. Uh, you know, actually what we're looking at is for competitors. We, we don't want our competitors to use our stuff. Please don't use our stuff. We'll use our stuff. You can go ahead and, and, and fly blind. We'll go ahead and you know use our own, it amounts to economic radar. You can go ahead and fly blind. Mm -hmm. But you know, we've been we've been finally working on this to the point where you, you we're giving everybody the 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 101 version of this. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's like studying calculus. You can study calculus and at the end of a semester you can do you can do derivatives, you can do integrals. But what you can't do probably after a semester of calculus is figure out a trajectory for the next spaceship to go to Mars. Right. And so we're, we're trying to do is give people enough information to get through the first semester of calculus or the hypernomics and then start to expand the stuff for themselves because th this is worldwide enduring and is Absolutely. not going to go away simply because somebody wants it to go away. It, it, it needs Absolutely. to be understood in order for the world to be a better place. And that's, you know, that's a one hunk of what it is that we're doing here. We're trying to make the world a better place with this. In addition to because, making our, you know, so, making a living on it. Of course, of course, you are yeah. the brainchild. You're the mastermind of this. And the mastermind needs to, you know, at least get something back for the knowledge that they give out, Doug. Um, yeah. It does sound like a fundamental global, it's a fundamental understanding that the world needs. Um, are you putting these in practices? Like It sounds like it's something that needs to be in universities, in academia. Are you making moves around that? Are you teaching classes around that? Well, we, we have, uh, again, the, there's a book I have entitled Hypernomics, mm -hmm. using hidden dimensions to solve unseen problems that came out today in mm -hmm. in bookstores yeah. worldwide. It's also available on Amazon, Walmart, and Barnes & Noble website, plus the Wiley site. Wiley's my publisher, fourth largest publisher mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. And Wiley is targeting universities with this. We, we think that it ought to be a textbook at university. Even before I had the book out, I, I was offered a, a slot at UCLA Extension to speak, then kind of COVID mm -hmm. hit and it fell apart, but we want to go back to university and explain some very important concepts that people need to grasp mm -hmm. and uh, 
get a bunch of smart people working on smart problems to make the economy and businesses and governments run better. So that's what we hope to do. Putting, putting all these brains and these heads together, putting this in practice and making the world a better place. Why not? Of course, why not? Like, that's, through that's kind of the idea. Your principles, yeah. Through your principles of hypergonomics. Once again, the book is out today. Um, Doug, I'd like to give you this opportunity to um, tell us what else that you would like to share. Where can we find you? Where can we, we you said that we can find this book on Amazon. Um, what else is it that you would like to share with us? And uh, again, where can we find hypernomics? Well, you can find uh, the company, uh, Hypernomics Inc. at www.hypernomics.com. That's H-Y-P-E-R-N-O-M-I-C-S.com. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And there you'll find a whole bunch of LinkedIn posts that I pulled in and made basically part of a blog. And it shows how we talk about everything from ants to Airbus A380s and, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. spaceships, you know, ground beef, the whole gamut. And you can also go off to my personal website, DougHoworth.com. Right. And you can write me at DougHoworth at Hypernomics.com, those of you that are interested. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we'll chat. We'll write back and tell you what's going on. So, All right. Fantastic, Doug. Thank you so much for the insight. Thank you for this, like, a new frontier is what I'm looking at. And I feel like I hope that we start you know, pushing it out there. We start learning it more. And I'm, uh, it makes me excited for the future, to be honest. Thank you so much, Doug. Well, thank you very much, Josh. I really appreciate the time. And thanks for having me on your show. All right. Fantastic, everyone, for all the listeners. Thank you for listening in. Catch that book out. And we'll see you on the next one. All right. So here's the thing. We try to get a little bit better every day. But we can't do it without you. So if you like the video, make sure to like and subscribe below. And if you have any comments, just leave them in the space under.